From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Tuesday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. It's a very special uh, listener comment line slash mailbag edition of Open Line Tuesday. Father Wade is gallivanting in uh, the Great White North as he's doing a parish mission for the Lenten season in uh, beautiful British Columbia as we speak today. So we are uh, putting some brand spanking new content together for you so that you will... uh, be able to uh, enjoy that while he is uh, taking care of those missions, and um, he has a a springboard topic for today. He's actually live in studio with us as we record this, and and I'm a little taken aback by the topic of the springboard topic that he chose to wait until he was in my presence to discuss, <laughs> and we'll get to that in just one moment. If you'd like, if you'd like to be part of a future mailbag program, simply send us an email to openline at ewtn.com, or you can call our uh, regular studio line after 4 p.m. Eastern time, and that number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 after 4 p.m., and you can leave your question for Father Wade there. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. And uh, our host, Father Wade Menezes, you're going to talk about how do people become possessed by demons. That's right. That's right. And I don't like the way you're looking at me. <laughs> well, it, this was not planned, Jack, to do this springboard in your presence, just uh, t- three feet across the table from you. So please don't take it personal. But I uh, know we are in the midst of Lent and, uh, you know, the, the gospel of Jesus being tempted in the desert and how Jesus gives us a perfect model for resisting temptation. Uh, I came across recently uh, three categories of activity that most exorcists are in agreement on uh, that can open a person to demonic influence in their life, either through possession, obsession, or oppression. So I'll get to those in a moment. But remember that when we pray Compline every Tuesday night, for those of us who pray the Liturgy of the Hours, we come across this reading from 1 Peter 5. <laughs> Stay sober and alert. Your opponent, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, solid in your faith. Huh? That's exactly what we want to do. So uh, Father Mike Driscoll in his book, Demons, Deliverance, and Discernment, Separating Fact from Fiction about the spirit world, he says this, exorcists identify three categories of activities and experiences that open a person to demonic possession. We can think of these categories as doors for demonic attacks. They invite demons in, but they do not always result in actual demonic possession. There is also demonic oppression and demonic obsession, as I said earlier. So what are the three categories of activity that can open a person to demonic possession, according to Father Driscoll's book? Number one is patterns of sin. Number two, the occult. And number three, being a victim of trauma, which which sounds kind of harsh at first because a victim is innocent in regards to what's happened to them. But but hang on a second, because we're going to get to that point. It has to do with not being healed from the trauma, and we'll get to that in a moment. So the first category is referred to as patterns of sin. This does not mean simply being a sinner, since all of us are sinners, of course. Rather, this refers to people who have a habit of serious sin that they like, that they are attached to, and have no desire 
desire or intention of stopping. That is what is objectively and subjectively a mortal sin, we could say. In other words, there is a conscious decision to give oneself over to the serious sin. Demons can see this as an invitation to their activity. The second category of influences that invite demons into one's life is the occult, that is, occultic activity and practices. Occult practices include such things as Satanism, the use of tarot cards and the Ouija board, and the consulting of psychics and mediums. This also includes necromancy, the attempt to consult with spirits of the dead for the sake of learning hidden knowledge or future events or to try to control the future and future events. And the devil loves this kind of thing, right? This is why this becomes a second door, a second category of activity to lead one possibly into demonic influence. And then being a victim of trauma or abuse is a third category of experience that can open the door to demonic possession. For example, the trauma may be witnessing a murder, a suicide, or horrific accident. The abuse may be sexual, physical, or psychological. One exorcist explains that those who go through these experiences can end up living in the dark emotions of anger, rage, resentment, and even revenge. He stressed the importance of such victims thus getting the psychological and spiritual help they need in order to have some degree of healing. So no doubt they're a victim. No doubt they're innocent in regards to what they're a victim of. Uh, that's what I meant earlier when I said it could, it could sound kind of harsh that this could still be a third door that uh, permits the demonic activity to influence their life. Well, it has to do really with the fact, not so much because of the, the, the innocent victimhood that they share in the trauma, rather it has to do that they're not healed yet. And the devil can use that not being healed yet as a portal to influence the person's life. So again, this particular exorcist, Father Driscoll tells us, stressed the importance of such victims getting the psychological and spiritual help that they need in order to have some degree of healing. The healing needs to take place, in other words. If such people do not get the psychological and spiritual help and healing that they need, those emotions can weaken their relationship with God and simultaneously be an opening to a relationship with evil spirits. And I want to wrap up with this. If we don't quite get through this um, here, we'll, uh, we'll do so when I come back. Hopefully I can in the, in the next five minutes before the, the first break. The four most common signs of demonic possession. Now, these are listed in the Roman ritual itself for exorcism. The four most common signs of demonic possession are the following. An aversion towards sacred things, holy things. Huh? Number two, speaking in an unknown or dead language. Number three, having extraordinary strength that goes beyond the person's regular human nature. And number four, knowledge of concealed or hidden things. And then a little bit here about an exorcism itself. An exorcism is a sacramental. It is not a sacrament. A sacrament is effective in and of itself, and we have seven of them in the church. Three sacraments of healing, uh, baptism, confirmation, Holy Eucharist, two sacraments of union and mission, sacrament of matrimony and holy orders, and two sacraments of healing, confession and the anointing of the sick. So again, a sacrament is effective in and of itself, but an exorcism is not a sacrament, it's a sacramental. If a priest imparts absolution to someone in the sacrament of confession, at that moment, truly his or her sins are forgiven. Exorcism, on the other hand, is efficient to the extent of the holiness of the priest performing the exorcism and of the faith of the person being exorcised and that of the whole church as well. 
Both exorcism and prayers of deliverance have the same objective. They seek the liberation of the person from the influence of evil or from demonic possession, oppression, or obsession. But exorcism is actually a ministry within the church which the bishop confers on certain designated and properly deputed priests, or properly designated priests, to carry out the exorcism per se. Only priests who have the explicit permission of the bishop can perform an exorcism. An exorcism cannot be performed by lay people. Now, prayers of deliverance, however, also called prayers of liberation, can be prayed by anyone, man or woman, layman or priest, in virtue of being a baptized Christian, because as Christ says in the gospel, anyone who believes in me shall cast out demons. Mark 16, verses 17 and 18 confer that passage. It must also be noted that an exorcism functions as a direct order given to the devil, whereas prayers of deliverance or liberation constitute a supplication, that is, an asking to God to intervene in the person's life and to relieve them of the demonic influence. Again, uh, of the obsession or oppression. But for the exorcism, that's only by a, a bona fide priest, duly deputed or duly delegated by uh, the bishop, which more likely than not would be his own bishop. Uh, if it's done by another bishop, then his bishop needs to give permission for that second bishop to give the faculties uh, for uh, the uh, to serve as an exorcist. So James 4 says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will take flight. What a great uh, admonition for us during this Lent. Draw close to God, it continues, and he will draw close to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your heart, you backsliders. Be humbled in the sight of the Lord, and he will raise you on high. James 4, verses 7, 8, and 10. And Romans 12, verses 9 through 12, we read this. Detest what is evil. Cling to what is good. Love one another with the affection of brothers and sisters. Anticipate each other in showing respect. Do not grow slack, but be fervent in your spirit. He whom you serve is the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient under trial, and persevere in prayer. So there you have it. Some great scriptural uh, admonitions from 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, James 4, verses 7, 8 and 10, and Romans 12, 9 through 12, uh, on keeping the devil at bay from influencing our lives. Again, it's a very special uh, listener comment line and mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, so we will not be taking your phone calls today, but if you'd like to be part of a future mailbag show, send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. It's EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. You know, I want to give you a personal invitation to check out our uh, website dedicated to our founder, foundress, Mother Angelica, and you can celebrate her remarkable life there. It's filled with photographs, milestones, uh, all kinds of stories, uh, her own wit and wisdom and the words that she shared with all of us over the years. And um, you can see all of it at EWTN.com slash Mother Angelica. 
Log on to EWTN.com slash Mother Angelica today. Again, it's a special mailbag slash listener comment line edition of Open Line Tuesday. Father Wade is um, enjoying the beauty of uh, British Columbia and Canada for a couple of parish missions the next couple of weeks. Um, So we're going to empty out some of the mailbag and listen to a couple of our listener comment line calls. Ashley writes in, Father Wade, what is an appropriate age to teach children about purgatory? How do you first explain the concept? My two kids are 8 and 11. Oh, I think it's it's definitely uh, a, a time to be able to share with them about the reality of, of passing, of death, and of the doctrine of the communion of saints, what we believe as Catholics about the doctrine of the communion of saints, the, the three-tiered hierarchy of the doctrine of the communion of saints, the members of the church triumphant in heaven, the members of the church militant still living on earth, and uh, the members of the church penitent or the members of the church suffering in purgatory, which is what your question surrounds. But I wouldn't make it just on that uh, topic alone. I would incorporate heaven and life on earth and life in heaven uh, with the purgative souls when you teach them about purgatory, right? And let's remember that Susan Tassoni uh, has a great new children's book uh, on purgatory where she conveys that it's very, very appropriate uh, to convey to children this doctrine on the members of the church penitent or on the church suffering. Uh, I'm pulling up that title right now so that we can share that. Um, it's titled New Friends Now and Forever, A Story About the Holy Souls. New Friends Now and Forever, A Story About the Holy Souls. That came out just at the end of this past year of 2023. I think it was officially released, Jack, right around uh, All Souls Day, uh, November 2nd. And so be sure to look that up. But I would definitely incorporate it uh, with discussion on the th- what, what the Catechism calls so beautifully the three states of the Church. Uh, the members of the Church triumphant in heaven who have already received the crown that does not wither, as St. Paul teaches so beautifully in the New Testament. A great quote, he goes, you know, athletes deny themselves all sorts of things, do they not? And for what? A crown of leaves that withers after three days? But we Christians, uh, a crown that is absolutely imperishable, uh, the crown of everlasting life in heaven with the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the members of the church triumphant in heaven, members of the church militant on earth still fighting the good fight. That's those like us still living, of course. And this mom who's calling with, who's, who's uh, writing in with this question and about her children and teaching them purgatory. And of course, the members of the church uh, purgative or the members of the church penitent or the members of the church suffering in purgatory. But uh, a great book to get would be Susan Tassoni's new book, New Friends Now and Forever, A Story of about the holy souls. And you can find that at EWTN's religious catalog at EWTNRC.com. Let's take a listen to the first of our listener comment line calls. This is Greg. I have a question about confessing uh, mortal sins, but, you know, close to a uh, number of the quantity and how many times it occurred. Going back and past in my life, I think about all the sins that I've committed that you can't remember the quantity. Uh, I went to confession, and my priest tells me that as long as you're sorry for them, it's the, they're all taken care of. So you keep remembering these things, and you keep going back. So I just want a clarification. Thank you. Yeah, great, great question. And, and as far as not knowing the exact number, the Church doesn't ask for the exact number of sins committed. Uh, if it's a mortal sin, we give kind and approximate number. That's all. And what does kind mean? It means simply name it, name it simply. Uh, 
uh, drinking to excess uh, since my last confession, let's say, the person is confessing, and this is all hypothetical, of course. Uh, Father, I need to confess drinking to excess uh, one time since my last confession, which was about two months ago. Uh, if, if you have never confessed drinking to excess, and so you're sharing this with the priest now in confession, and you don't obviously know the exact number of times, you would say something like this, Father, I'd like to, con- to confess all the times that I've ever uh, drank to excess, that is, to the point of drunkenness, um, whatever number of times that has happened throughout my entire life up to the present moment of this confession, I'm truly sorry for. So that priest that told you that, as, as long as you're sorry, it does suffice, he, he was correct, but I would go one step further. I would tell the penitent, well, confess it this way, just simply say, whatever number of times this has happened, I'm truly sorry for it. I don't know the exact number of times. So whatever the number of times is that it happened, I'm truly sorry for it. And that suffices. And unless you do it again, you don't have to confess it again. How beautiful is that, right? And if you fall again into that particular sin, whatever it might be, uh, confess it again. But remember, we want to have a, a, a good intention, a good firm purpose of amendment is what it's called in the Church's documents on confession, a firm purpose of amendment to not want to fall into that sin again. This is why the, the traditionally worded act of contrition is so beautiful, right? I firmly resolve with the help of thy grace to confess my sins, to do my penance, and to amend my life. Amen. How beautiful is that? So great question. Thank you so much. Got an email here from Kathy, Father, and she says, Hello, Father Wade. My husband and I were both raised Catholic. He was divorced when we got married by a justice of the peace. We have been away from the church for a long time, but I've been going back to Mass for about two years and unable to receive the sacraments. My husband is not going to Mass with me. He has been uncooperative with the annulment process. He says he can't remember if he got married in the Catholic Church or by a justice of the peace over 52 years ago. I want to become sacramental at this point. Is living as brother and sister my only option? If I choose this option, can I go to confession, or do I have to discuss this issue with a priest? A great series of questions. So, if you're living as though brother and sister, that's the old phrase in the older theological textbooks, meaning there's no relations going on, and that's your only way to be able to receive Holy Communion and regular confession, yes, and you would make that clear to the priest that you're in currently a non-canonical marriage, a, f- a non-canonical form of marriage, and I'll get to that in a moment. You're in a non-sacramental marriage, and in the eyes of the Church is technically invalid because uh, there's a prior union that has yet to be declared null and void with your current civil husband and did she say that her that this is this is her first marriage? Uh, she didn't indicate anything other than that. Okay, so presuming it's her first marriage, or even if it's not her first marriage, she, uh, she, she the marriage is simply not valid by virtue of the fact that her first that her current civil husband has a first marriage still in place that's presumed to be valid until it's proven otherwise. Now, I would think it would be easy for your and they and they were married by a justice of the peace. And they were married so, by yeah. justice of the peace. Yeah, so it should be easy enough for her first hu- her current husband excuse me, uh, to find out whether or not 
as a Catholic, which he is, if his first marriage was in the Catholic Church or not, or by Justice of the Peace. If it was by the Justice of the Peace, the court would have a record of it. And even if it was in the Catholic Church, the, the court of that county where he married his first wife would say that it was in such and such Catholic Church because counties require the Church's information. So it should be easy enough to discern on his part whether or not his first marriage was in the Church or not. If it wasn't, then his first marriage was never valid, and there's no annulment to go through other than to provide proof that his first civil divorce is valid. Your current Catholic Church where you attend would require that validity of the divorce being in place. Uh, But if it was in the Catholic Church, he would need to have it declared null and void. And I would think that in his love for you, in you wanting to return to the sacraments and hopefully lead him back to the sacraments, especially contemplating the reality of death, which is down the road, uh, he would want to get right with God with the sacrament of matrimony. So regarding the canonical form of marriage, the Church requires that a Catholic party must be married before a duly authorized bishop, priest, or deacon in the presence of at least two witnesses. This is called the canonical form of marriage. Again, uh, the Catholic party must be married before a duly authorized bishop, priest, or deacon in the presence of two witnesses. This is called the canonical form of marriage. In other words, these are the requisite conditions for a valid marriage in the Catholic Church in which one or both parties are indeed Catholic. For the marriage of a Catholic to be valid, there must be present a duly authorized, that is a properly delegated bishop, priest, or deacon, for example, the parish priest, pastor himself within his own parish, or another bishop, priest, or deacon duly delegated by him, and number two, before two witnesses. A dispensation from this canonical form of marriage can be obtained for mixed marriages. For example, if a Catholic girl is marrying a a Baptist young man, and the Baptist young man, his grandfather, let's say, is the pastor of the Baptist church, and they really want the grandfather to marry them, the girl can seek a dispensation from this traditional canonical form of marriage from her bishop. And in such a case, it might well be granted because it would also foster ecumenism uh, within the church. And the Catholic relatives could then go to the marriage, which has been properly dispensed to take place in the Baptist Church, and even the Catholic relatives could go to it because it would be a valid sacramental marriage uh, at the end of the day. And so we rejoice in that truth, but the dispensation would have to be sought out from the bishop. Uh, And so in your case, though, you really want to encourage your husband to listen to this podcast after it's been posted. And there's many reasons why he would want to get married in the church. Number one, before he dies, if I could be quite frank, uh, you know, we want to be right with God before we die. We don't want any adulterous relationships taking place. And that's what's presumed to be happening as long as his first marriage is still presumed to be valid and licit in the eyes of our Lord Jesus Christ and his bride, the church, which he founded, right? Uh, This is, of course, if the marriage was indeed in the Catholic Church to begin with, right? Uh, And so he wants to seek that out to see if it is indeed a Catholic wedding, the first one that he had. And if so, then he can go through the canonical process for an annulment. And if for no other reason, the third reason, his love of you, you want to receive the sacraments uh, while having the conjugal embrace taking place as well. Marriage is tied to the conjugal embrace. The conjugal embrace is tied to marriage. And hopefully, it's not just to live as though brother and sister that permits you to receive regular confession and regular Eucharist. And as far as informing your priest, if you do go to confession without 
the benefit of the annulment of, of your civil husband's first marriage. Yes, you would let the priest know that. Something along these lines. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. My last confession was three months ago. Father, I am in an invalid marriage, uh, but but we are living as though brother and sister, and so I want to receive Eucharist and reconciliation regularly. And you'd let the priest know that's your situation. And he might offer to talk to your husband, God willing, to uh, if, if, with a, a priestly meeting with him to encourage him to seek out the annulment. Great question. Thank you so much. Again, it's a very special listener comment line slash mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, where we talk faith, family, and fellowship. If you'd like to be part of a future mailbag episode, you can simply send us an email and uh, send that email to openline at EWTN.com. That's open line, all one word, at EWTN.com. It's EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. You know, Father Wade, it was uh, interesting. After I became Catholic at St. Pius X Catholic Church in Urbandale, Iowa, I mean, just everything about being Catholic was a wonder to me, and it was just... uh, you know, as amazing as it has remained all of these decades later. Um, But shortly after I entered the church, we had a parish mission. And we had, uh, there were twin brother priests, Mm. the Gilo brothers out of Chicago. Uh, One of them at the time was a chaplain for the Chicago Bears, and they gave a a parish mission, a four-night parish mission, completely foreign concept to me. And it was just, I thought, the most wonderful thing in the world, and it I've experienced many since then under various auspices, but boy, there's really not much better way to just give a little boost of 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 spiritual energy to a parish than a parish mission, is there? That's right. That's exactly right. In fact, uh, now Saint Pope John Paul II once said, there's nothing like a parish mission for periodical renewal of the parish preferably at least annually, he said, huh? So what is a parish mission like? Well, it's a fantastic opportunity, Jack, for the people of the parish and surrounding community to come together for a three, four, or five-night presentation on a particular theme or topic of Catholic teaching. With such things as daily Eucharistic adoration, ample opportunity for confession, and a solemn closing Mass on the last night, a parish mission is a great opportunity for both individual and parish-wide renewal. It provides a wonderful opportunity for parish-wide strengthening of the Church's teaching, and again, Pope St. John Paul II once said that for the periodical renewal of a parish, nothing beats a parish mission. Now, we Fathers of Mercy obviously preach parish missions. It's one of our main apostolate works. Uh, As a Father of Mercy, our our men uh, carry out the apostolate in preaching different events, right, Like, like missions, retreats, conferences, and devotions. But the parish mission remains preeminent in our apostolate work. So go to fathersofmercy.com and read more about the Fathers of Mercy and our dynamic preaching apostolate of parish missions, retreats, and devotions, and conferences. And tell your pastor about us. 
<coughs> your pastor may want to have a parish mission. And you can email, or he can email, your pastor can email our mission director, Father John Broussard, great Father of Mercy Priest. Email Father John Broussard at missions at fathersofmercy.com. That's an email address for Father John Broussard, the Fathers of Mercy mission director who does all the scheduling of our men who are full-time on the mission band. Missions at fathersofmercy.com. That's the word mission with an S at the end of it. Missions at fathersofmercy.com. Again, it's a special mailbag slash listener comment line edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. Got an email here from Kim, Father, and this is a, a dilemma that that is becoming more frequent, unfortunately, in our culture, especially here in America. She says, hello, I'm searching for answers to two questions. Of course, I have searched the internet and read multiple books, but I get different answers, so I'm trying to consult directly to a Catholic priest to see if you can assist me in my journey. If my child is a same-sex physical is in a same-sex physical relationship, she's a 25-year-old female, is it okay for my husband and I to host them in our home for dinner, holidays, etc.? I've heard answers of both yes and no. Is it a sin if we do? Is it a sin if we don't? I'm torn. My daughter clearly knows that we do not support her lifestyle while in a relationship. We understand that she is same-sex attracted, but the church advises against acting out sexually on those emotions. She also knows that we love her unconditionally and we have a strong relationship with her. And secondly, with that being said, in the future, she speaks openly about getting married someday. What is the church's stance on attending her wedding, us, her siblings, or any guests who are Catholic? Is there a difference between attending the wedding or the reception? I truly hope you can give me some guidance and peace. Great series of questions, and up until the very last part of this series of questions where she asks about the forthcoming possible wedding, uh, I want to say up front that everything can be said about a heterosexual couple that's cohabitating in my answer. I would say the same answer for not only the homosexual couple, but the heterosexual couple. So we want to always lead others to the truth. And to do that, we have to evangelize. And to evangelize, the best way to do that is in person. We never, ever, ever want to amputate a relationship. We have the right to detach from a relationship if we see that that relationship is leading me into sin or it's bringing me a non-peace in my life. But we want to evangelize but have proper boundaries. So I would say that since you made it clear in your question to EWTN Radio that was just read, since you've made it clear that your daughter already knows that you, her mother, and her father, your husband, what they already believe to be the truth about this situation being a sinful situation, your daughter knows exactly what the church teaches and how her parents feel about it, there is no fear of your daughter thinking otherwise should she come to dinner with this significant other. What I would not do is permit them to stay the night. That would be open to the activity of the sin. And remember, we're called not only to avoid sin directly, we're called to avoid the near occasion of sin. 
and to open up a bedroom to the two of them, even a heterosexual son, let's say, who's cohabitating with his girlfriend, it would be wrong to do so. Again, the same thing applies to the heterosexual couple here. But how else would we evangelize if we didn't keep at least the door open? And you are already safeguarded by the fact that your daughter already knows where her parents stand on this issue. Your goal is to give uh, a point of evangelization and let them see how you live your Catholic faith. How else can you do this unless there's some opportunity for a one-on-one, okay? But there's no fear here of your daughter believing you're giving in to the activity because your daughter already knows where you stand, and you surely would not let the... um, the activity happen in the home or the near occasion for the sinful activity take place in the home. Now, for the question of marriage, is there a hope here of regularization of the union? With a heterosexual couple, there is hope of regularization if they're willing to do things right, even if there's a prior marriage, as I answered in a previous uh, question here this hour, if they're willing to go through the process for the annulment, for the tribunal, let's say the tribunal does declare it null and void, the first marriage, there's hope of regularization for the second marriage because it's a heterosexual union. With a homosexual union, there is not hope of regularization. That bears in, that point, that fact bears importantly here on whether or not we can go to the marriage. My answer is it would not be the mind of the church to go to such a ceremony because you are simultaneously giving credence to the sinful activity. I also happen to be of the bent that even with a heterosexual couple, there is hope for regularization, but at the end of the day, it is still not a valid marriage, and there's going to be sinful activity taking place, okay? But at least with the heterosexual couple, there is hope for regularization. There are not there is not a hope of regularization in the other act in the other uh, homosexual couple situation. So uh, I would not go to the wedding. Because of that, no hope of being uh, regularized in the future, nor would I give any semblance of approval by a gift at the reception or by going to the reception. But again, I hold strong in regards to, at the end of the day, what's taking place. Is it a valid marriage or not? And if with the heterosexual couple, it's not a valid marriage, uh, I would not give a gift either, because we cannot give a semblance of approval to something that is not pleasing to God. But at least with the heterosexual couple, there's a hope of regularization, and once it is regularized, then yes, you can give a gift, you can uh, celebrate with them, etc. But I think in a day and age, and, and here's the crux right here, in a day and age when the sanctification of marriage and family life are so viciously attacked by the culture in general, and especially traditional marriage and family life under the natural law as designed by God, in particular, is natural marriage and family life attacked by the culture today, 24 years into the third millennium culture. Here's my question to everybody. When are we going to finally stand up for the sanctification of marriage and family life? We're not doing it if we give in to these Um, irregular situations that are not permitted, okay, that that don't have a hope of being regularized or are not yet regularized but do have a hope of being regularized. We have to stand up for God's law. When are we going to finally start doing that? And this is a good way to do that. Now, remember, I'm not saying to amputate the relationship with anybody here. In fact, that's how I started my answer here with this question. I made it clear we never, ever amputate 
but you have a right to detach with love, as Father Emmerich Vogt would say. We never amputate, but we do have a right to detach with love. So what's a detachment with love here, whether the, the, the couple's heterosexual or homosexual? Well, I can't attend your wedding and celebrate with you that day. I want you to know that I'm praying for you. I want you to know that I love you very much. And I pray one day for the regularization in your life of God's holy law well lived. And I pray for that. In fact, I would be willing to die for it as a martyr if God permitted me to do so. This is detaching with love. We never, ever, ever, ever amputate a relationship, but we want to keep it open to be able to evangelize the other. You know, and I, and I close with this. The greatest love that one can have for another in this life while still living on earth is to lay down their life for them. And Jesus Christ did just that. What's the greatest love we can have for another even beyond this life of living on earth? It's to see them one day in heaven. The greatest love I can have for you even beyond this life is to one day see you in heaven and be with you and live with you in heaven before the beatific vision, the triune Godhead for all eternity. I don't want you to not go to heaven. I don't want you to remain persistent in your objective mortal sin. Even if subjectively it's not mortal sin, my evangelizing to you makes it clear that it's at least objectively mortal sin. And I want to help get you out of that situation because I want to one day see you in heaven. And this is the message we want to give to others. Again, a special edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, not taking your phone calls today. Let's take a listen to another of our listener comment line calls. Joe calling from Rancho Cucamonga, California. The question is is regarding purgatory and the difference between when do you go to heaven automatically or do you go to purgatory with the gates being closed to heaven? What a great question, and a shout-out to Rancho, we call it, Rancho Cucamonga, where the two Itona brothers, Father Jewel Itona and Father Joseph Itona, are from. And Father Jewel is full-time for the Father's Mercy on Our Mission Band, like myself, and Father Joseph Itona, his brother, is the rector at the Shrine of Our Lady of Champion, formerly called Our Lady of Good Health, in Champion, Wisconsin. So a shout-out to the Itona brothers and the Fathers of Mercy, both great priests. A shout-out to their homeland of Rancho Cucamonga. My late wife Susie's youngest brother lives in Rancho Cucamonga. Oh, there you go. There, there you go. Yeah, great. And uh, and so we want to give a shout. At, I know the, the Itona brothers affectionately call it simply Rancho, you know. So so we give a shout-out to Rancho. Great question. So it has it bears on whether or not at the time of your earthly death, whether or not you have already atoned for all temporal punishment due to already forgiven mortal sin. If at the time of the earthly death that you experience, that is in the affirmative, you have already atoned for the temporal punishment for your already forgiven mortal and venial sin, no need to go to purgatory. But if you have, you go straight to heaven, in other words. But And that's God's plan A for us, by the way, I might add. But if at the time of your earthly death you have not yet atoned for, you're already forgiven mortal and venial sins and the consequences that they have borne in the world and in your life, then you have to atone for that temporal punishment in purgatory. Temporal punishment is purgatory. Eternal punishment is hell, okay? Uh, but this question bears on only the former, temporal punishment. So there's many ways we can atone for our temporal punishment for our already forgiven mortal and venial sins while living on earth. 
what are some of the ways? Well, the plenary or partial indulgence. This is why I encourage every Catholic home library to have a, a copy of the Handbook of Indulgences. There's over 250 ways inside of it which list partial and plenary indulgences we can seek out, seek out to atone for that temporal punishment. Also, how about the three eminent good works carried out with a particular willed intention, with a firm and deliberate act of, of your will, uh, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, carrying out any combination, or singularly for that matter, of the three eminent good works uh, to atone for your temporal punishment, not for the works themselves, that's secondary, but primarily for the for the the charity they help foster when we pray for others, when we fast for others uh, or ourselves, uh, and giving almsgiving to others, you know, pr- doing prayer, fasting, almsgiving, what are known collectively as the three eminent good works. Likewise, carrying out any of the 14 works of mercy, uh, the seven for the body called the corporal works of mercy, the seven for the soul called the spiritual works of mercy, um, we carry those out individually or in any combination, not for the works themselves, no, but for the charity they help foster, right? That, that's what's important. And we carry them out with the particular willed intention of uh, atoning for our temporal punishment uh, for our already forgiven mortal and venial sins. This is why I'm such a big advocate of monthly confession. Uh, say, in honor of the First Friday devotion to the Sacred Heart or the First Saturday devotion to the Immaculate Heart. But the, the seven uh, corporal works of mercy, to feed the hungry, to give drink to the thirsty, to clothe the naked, to visit the imprisoned, to shelter the homeless, to visit the sick, and to bury the dead. And the seven spiritual works of mercy, to admonish the sinner, to instruct the ignorant, to counsel the doubtful, to comfort the sorrowful, to bear wrongs patiently, Uh, to forgive all injuries, and to pray for the living and the dead. So there's many ways that we can atone for temporal punishment. We can offer sacrifices at Mass. You know, you can offer a Mass for yourself uh, for the purposeful willed intention of atoning for your uh, already forgiven mortal and venial sins. So there's many ways to do this, is my point, while still living on earth, so that by the time we die, uh, we have already atoned for any temporal punishment due to our, our already forgiven mortal and venial sins. And, and I close with this. Why does temporal punishment still remain even after we've confessed the mortal or venial sin? And the mortal sin absolutely has to be taken to the confessional. The, the, the venial sin doesn't. There's other ways that venial sins are forgiven, like the penitential rite at Mass. But why does the temporal punishment even remain after we've confessed the sin in confession? Because remember, you receive absolution for the guilt. The guilt's forgiven during absolution and confession. But the temporal punishment remains. Why? Well, as Mother Angelica would say, Jack, sin is messy. How is it messy? Four primary categories, personal, social, ecclesial, and cosmic. There's personal, social, ecclesial, and cosmic consequences to sin whenever we commit it, whether mortal or venial. Okay? And so that's why sin is messy. That's why the temporal punishment remains. We haven't robbed a bank in a while. We haven't robbed a bank in a while. That's usually my, my. well, I may as well go ahead and say yeah. it. You know, sin is always, always, always a personal act, even if it's carried out together. I, what Jack's uh, referring to here is I've used the example in the past on Open Line Tuesday. If Jack and I rob a bank together, which we haven't, I want to make that clear, Johnette would not be happy with Father Wade if that was the case. And she surely wouldn't be happy with her husband, Jack, if he robbed a bank with Father Wade. But if, if Father Wade and Jack rob a bank together, they true enough, they carried out the sin together, but it's still a personal sin. Why? Because sin is always, always, always a personal act that the individual carries out, even if it's carried out with another. So think of the married man 
who carries out adultery with a woman who is not his wife. They carried out the sin of adultery together, right? But it's still an individual personal sin on his part, and it's still an individual personal sin on his adulterous lover's part, her part. So it's still a personal act. So this is why that temporal punishment remains. The personal, the social, ecclesial, and cosmic consequences remain on the individual person's part because sin is always a personal act. Be sure to check out The Doctor is In tomorrow afternoon and every afternoon Monday through Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Dr. Ray Garendi takes your phone calls, and it's a real great opportunity uh, to get. He can't shrink on the air, as he says, but he can give general advice, and a lot of that can be very, very helpful. That's The Doctor is In with Dr. Ray Garendi tomorrow afternoon, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Can I say something very charitable about Dr. Ray? In, in jest, of course, but I had well, the, gra- be the That may be the first time anybody has ever th- said anything on EWTN Radio that was charitable about Dr. Ray. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's this, you know, I, I gave a men's retreat uh, a year ago where with Dr. Ray, where he and I were the two speakers, the two co-speakers. I'll just leave it here, Jack. By the end of that weekend retreat with the men, being with Dr. Ray all weekend, I needed a retreat after that <laughs> retreat, okay? We'll just leave it there. Hey, listen, I have the <laughs> utmost respect for Dr. Ray. He's been a pro-life warrior for a long time. And in fact, you know, he has stuck to his guns. And in 1972, when that Roe versus Wade decision uh, came down, um, you know, he said, you know, I, in solidarity with the unborn, I, no matter how unfashionable it becomes, will not shave this mustache until that (laughs) ruling is overturned. And he has stuck to his guns up until and even including the time beyond the, I'm just kidding, but... Ray is a wonderful human being, and we uh, we love him here desperately. Um, got an email here from Rose. Rose is funny. Rose says, does it matter if the sin you forget or deliberately leave out is venial? I understand that deliberately not telling a mortal sin invalidates absolution. And she says, yes, I tend to be scrupulous. <laughs> <laughs> she knows Father Wade well, because one of the first things Father Wade was going to say is, Rose, don't be scrupulous, Rose. Uh, Rose, by virtue of the fact that it's venial sin, uh, there's no problem with either scenario that you just presented. There's, there's no problem if you purposely leave it out, because it didn't need to be confessed in the first place in confession, because there's other ways that venial sins are forgiven. As you aptly say in your questioning, Uh, mortal sin requires confession, and you understand there's a problem if you deliberately leave out a mortal sin, but not with venial sin. It doesn't need to be confessed in confession in the first place. So if you deliberately leave it out, there's not a problem there. If you forget it as a venial sin to confess it, there's obviously no problem there either. Now, I would say this, if you were my spiritual directee and I was your spiritual director, I might say this. I might say, well, why were you so fearful in the confessional that you deliberately didn't want to confess the venial sin. Number one, it was venial to begin with. It couldn't have been that bad. Number two, um, what was causing that fear? Let's Here in this spiritual dire- direction session for this half hour, let's say, let's talk about that fear. What's driving that fear? I might ask you that question, but no, to answer your direct question, Rose, there's no problem. And let's take a listen to our final listener comment line call. Chelsea, Madeira, California. Question is, I'm wondering at what is... Uh, classified as venial sins. Thank you. Oh, great, great question. Good follow-up, Josie. Yeah, great, great follow-up. So uh, 
I answer that question by telling you exactly what a mortal sin is. A mortal sin is three things and three things only. Grave matter, done with fullness of knowledge that it's grave matter, and done with deliberate consent of your will. Let's break those down for a mortal sin now, and then I'll tell you what a venial sin is to answer her question directly. Grave matter, it seriously contravenes God's moral law, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, seriously so. Number two, you have full knowledge of that fact, that it contravenes God's moral law, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and gravely so, seriously so. And number three, you do it with deliberate consent of your will anyway. You carry out the action with deliberate consent of your will anyway. Grave matter done with fullness of knowledge and done with deliberate consent of your will. If any one of those is missing, you have a venial sin. It could still remain objectively mortal. So let's say for an example, for example, the young girl just turned 17. She finds herself in an unplanned pregnancy. Her boyfriend coerces her, forces her. The boyfriend even pays for it to get the abortion. She has no idea. She's never had any type of a Christian upbringing whatsoever. All she's been formed by is the secular culture. Now, abortion is always, always, and always, objectively speaking, a mortal sin. But subjectively speaking, it's, it's venial in her part. Why? Because she doesn't have the second element of fullness of knowledge that it contravenes God's moral law objectively and seriously and gravely so. So she does she ha, she doesn't have the uh, it, it, she has the 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 first part remains, excuse me, the first part remains it's grave matter that never changes. A, a, abortion is always and everywhere wrong. It's grave matter that doesn't change. Fullness of knowledge that it's grave matter. Well, that's absent. The young girl doesn't have that in this case that I just gave. And does she do it with deliberate consent of her will? Well, we could even question that because I said her boyfriend coerced her. Maybe she wanted to keep the baby, but the boyfriend coerced her. So I'd say there's definitely an argument that the second point of the three is missing. She doesn't have full knowledge that it contravenes God's moral law. The abortion contravenes God's moral law. She's never been raised with that at all. She has no, she's been conditioned by the culture. Okay. And number three is possibly missing fullness of will. Again, her boyfriend coerced her. So in this case, you have something that's always, always objectively mortal, but subjectively it's venial. And hopefully she'll be catechized to understand the gravity she's done one day. But there's an example of that. Then you can have an action that's not even gravely sinful to begin with. Uh, Driving three miles over the speed limit is wrong, but it's not grave matter. So at most it's venial, right? So there you have it. If any one of the three elements of a mortal sin is missing, you have a venial sin. That's if it's a mortal sin to begin with. You have to confess three miles over the speed limit? Well, not necessarily. I'm saying it's not grave matter. Although you're you're very telling, Jack, in asking me that question. Father Wade, would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners and remain with each and every one of you this day and always. St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us on behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, our producer, Michael McCall. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow with Father Mitch on EWTN's Open Line Wednesday. Until we get together then, God bless.